1: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
2: Hello there, history friends, and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails, the latest episode of the Franco-Dutch War. Episode 19, in fact. We've come a long way and seen a lot of stuff, and this episode is pretty darn good, if I do say so myself, because it gets into, well, a key event in the history of Prussia. Speaking of the history of Prussia, if you would like to wander over to Patreon, if you're wondering how you get there, then of course, patreon.com forward slash WendiplomacyFells, but if you were to wander over to WendiplomacyFells' Patreon page, then you would see that as our goal, well, one of our significant goals, stands as the History of Prussia podcast. What does that mean? Well, it means that in the future we'll be able to delve into events such as these in more detail. And if you guys would like to see that happen, then make sure you support this podcast on Patreon because it is, by far, the best way to ensure that when diplomacy fails expands and grows and absorbs loads of vassal states and all that kind of thing. But it also helps to make sure that when diplomacy fails is where history thrives. And hey, maybe it'll mean that I don't have to get a real job ever in my life. That would be nice. I'd love to just do this forever. But until that happens, I'm happy to be your humble history podcast host. I'm really enjoying covering the Franco-Dutch War. And if you are too, then, hey, drop me a line. Let me know. Remember to be fit. Be fit is still the best free way to support this podcast. So make sure you do that. Tell someone about it. Follow me on Twitter, at WDF Podcast. Maybe just visit the website, WDFpodcast.com. Hey, while you're there, maybe check out the blog, The Vassal State. As you can see, there is a lot of ways that you can support doesn't have to be monetarily based, but if you want to, then you can. As we said before, patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. Remember that if you do support, you're not just kind of investing in the future of this podcast, you're also instantly getting something back. And I'm not talking like the warm, fuzzy feeling of knowing that you made history thrive, although there is, of course, that. What you'll actually be getting a tangible, actual product is, of course, more of me, more of my voice. An hour extra of my voice every month, in fact. And you'll get the regular episodes a week earlier. And you won't have to hear all of this guff beforehand, which is surely nice. You guys have been very gracious, very forgiving, and very accepting of the fact that I'm on Patreon. And I really, really appreciate it. You've also been very generous as well, which of course is super extra appreciated. A tiny reminder, I am of course getting married soon, and I am of course also five years old. Okay, that sounds a bit odd, but what I mean by that is the podcast is five years old, and I'm getting married. It's completely legal, I promise. Wow. Okay, maybe we should just start this podcast, but yeah, the 18th of May 2017, look forward to it, guys, because that is when everything runs wild. I hope you're ready, because I certainly am. Okay. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this latest episode of the Franco-Dutch War. Frederick William, the Great Elector, makes a significant appearance within it. Enjoy, guys. Hello history friends, and welcome to episode 19 of the Franco-Dutch War. Last time we brought you through the campaigning year of 1674, which was an eventful one by all accounts, and one which introduced us to several important issues including the importance of Marshal Turenne to the French war effort, the French marriage to the Palatine family through Louis XIV's brother Philippe, and the critical threat which the Rhine frontier posed to French security. We noticed during the course of the previous episode also that the French tended to defend along the Rhine, besiege in the Spanish Netherlands, and exercise the bare minimum of resources along the Pyrenees, as the Mediterranean Mediterranean theatre began to heat up as well with a revolt in Sicily. In this episode, we are brought into 1675 as the war further evolves into the slugging match it would represent up until the peace treaty. And when they take you guys to early, 1675. Alliances are certainly good, but a force of one's own that one can confidently rely upon is better. A ruler is not treated with respect unless he has his own troops and resources. It is these, thank God, that have made me important since I have had them. Frederick William, the great elector of Brandenburg, writing in 1669. France had endured a solid year of campaigning, and with a rhythm apparently setting in as to how Louis planned to fight the so-called Dutch War, it seemed as though both Louis and the Allies would wage war until either side was sufficiently disadvantaged. To strike a blow sufficiently damaging to Louis would involve a wider invasion of his lands, and the weak points of France remained along the Rhine, where the recently annexed Alsace provided ample opportunities for a would-be invader to cross through Strasbourg and into the territory. Bordering Alsace was the equally problematic Lorraine, whose Duke remained at loggerheads with Louis and prepared to strike back at the French for seizing their lands. The Rhine had become particularly important as a defensive line once the Palatine was occupied from early 1674. The rapacious policies of the French did not endear Paris to the Germans, and by the end of 1674, as a consequence of this policy, virtually all of Louis's allies had abandoned him in the spring, Britain, and before the summer, the Bishop of Munster. Thus alone in the war, which increasingly counted more concerned German princes on the side of the Emperor, whose eager troops would be sent against Louis, Louis and his marshals needed a plan both to occupy the Germans along the Rhine and achieve victory against the Spanish and Dutch in the Netherlands. While Maastricht anchored the French hold on the region, this was the one bright spark and French forces had been forcibly removed from the Dutch Republic's territory by the spring of 1674. It remained a balancing act for the French, really, as Louis planned to divert and apportion his armies to the two fronts in the Spanish Netherlands, and along the extent of the Rhine, under the command of the esteemed Marshals, Condé and Turenne, respectively. By the end of 1675, though, both Marshals would be absent from their respective commands, and a new phase of the war would thus be set in motion. Our coverage in this episode first takes us to the Spanish Netherlands, where the French continued to hold Maastricht within a pocket of otherwise questionably loyal territories. To ensure its supply, the French would need a steady stream of secure land from France into Maastricht, and this depended on Liège, both the lands and fortress of which had come increasingly under threat from the Spanish, who had launched... Numerous sorties from their own domains since autumn 1674, in the process of which they were able to capture the smaller fortresses around the more impressive fortress of Liege, and they apparently planned to actually take Liege itself as well in the future. This obviously would have prevented the French from supplying Maastricht, and with rumours coming in that the Spanish were attempting to court the city leaders of Liege over to their side with large bribes accompanied by threats, always a handy combination. Condé was ordered into the region to ensure that it remained at the very least determinedly neutral. Eventually the threat was offset as the French moved sufficient forces into the region, but Louis XIV himself had bigger things planned for the spring of 1675 than a mere pressure campaign in Liège. To secure the region against future threats, Louis planned to move with an army of 40,000 men, supported by Condé, who was actually bound into a carriage because of his incessant gout, up the Meuse Valley by following its tributary, the River Sambre, which flowed into France. By following the rivers as they had done before, the French could mop up all significant resistance and capture the most important fortresses, culminating in Limburg, to the southeast of Maastricht. Not only would this campaign push the Spanish back from their recently gotten gains, but it would fulfill what Vauban had once advised Louis to undertake, and create a fence of iron around the French border, dotted with river-based fortresses that both insulated France and boxed in the enemy. The River Meuse, which flowed in a kind of semicircle around the Spanish Netherlands, was the perfect measuring stick for the campaign, and it had served French fortunes remarkably well in the past. By seizing the fortresses alongside it, France would be able to supply an increasing number of its fortifications by river on top of everything else. The problem with the campaign was the lack of forage, mainly because the lands had yet to recover from the previously devastating experiences, which saw much of the land burned in the early phase of the war, as the French sought to take every possible advantage away from the Dutch. To successfully campaign in this sensitive border area now would require vast supplies for Louis's 40,000-strong army, and this in itself would require heroic levels of organisation, the responsibility of which, predictably enough, fell to the French Minister of War, Louvois. For all his arrogance and pomposity, not to mention ineffectiveness as a negotiator, Louvois was a brilliant administrator, and his efforts had previously ensured French supply far earlier than expected, through the provision of vast consumables and other resources which could be stored in nearby fortresses. It sounds like a simple enough formula, but for the armies of the 17th century that lived mostly on the land, in circumstances and with results not far removed at all, really, from the experiences of the Thirty Years' War, the exercise of providing one's men with a home grown supply of forage negated the need to spend time pillaging the countryside, meaning that soldiers could focus on the task at hand. John A. Lynn, in his account of these wars, noted that 327,000 bushels of grain was stored in Maastricht and Liège in the weeks before the campaign, granting Louis's ambitious force 80,000 rations every day while in the field. On the 11th of May 1675, Louis led his army along the Sambre, giving the impression that he planned to strike at Brussels rather than his intended targets. The Dutch and Spanish, not yet assembled for the campaign, owing to their own want of forage and supply, could do little to halt the French while they awaited also the readiness of Prince William. That is, William of Orange, who was in fact the commander of Allied forces in the region. Quite a promotion. But William was suffering from an illness at the time and he was thus unable to command Allied forces as he would have liked. These two circumstances, the preparedness of the French and the utter unpreparedness of the Allies, combined to hand Louis arguably the most satisfying campaign of his life so far. By now, it seemed, the French King had more than forgotten about the frustrating experience which was the earlier phase of the Dutch War. Though William would appear with 40,000 troops of his own by the end of June, by then it was difficult to predict French movements, and the French moved into Brabant, pillaging it and avoiding a concrete siege altogether, following their successes in taking the central objective of Limburg on the 21st of that month. William became concerned that the French would then move on Brussels, but instead Louis put the region under contributions, terrifying the local populace further, and he used the monies gathered here to break relatively even on his campaign. With the major objectives secured, Maastricht and Liège were insulated from Allied attack, and Louis basked in his success rather than act aggressively against william's army though he peeled off divisions for turenne's army along the rhine the time had come to split the troops to suit the circumstances once more if louis's campaign along the meuse and into limburg had been a satisfying and gratifying display of his legend turenne's campaign along the rhine was a less glamorous continuation of the previous year's campaign which essentially involved attacking any allied army that ventured across the rhine and into alsace thereby threatening French integrity along that large and troublesome river. The Rhine was a constant menace to French security, presenting as it did a number of holes in the form of large fortresses that the French would have to plug. Some of these, like Philipsburg to the north, the French did own, but arguably the second most important river fortress, Strasbourg, remained in imperial hands. The experience of being invaded time and again through the bridgehead provided by this imperial city down south, would persuade Louis over the following years to siege the region in a nakedly aggressive land grab, but for the foreseeable future its presence required Turenne's constant attention as he tried to forestall increasingly ambitious allied incursions into France. In a series of daring moves in the chess game along the Rhine, Turenne and his imperial adversary, Raimondo Montecuccoli, crossed over pontoon bridges, sailed supplies downstream and captured important miniature strongholds in order to force their rival into a corner. The aim of Turenne was always to pin his rival against the river and then defeat him, preventing him from invading across Strasbourg into Alsace, as the Allies had the previous year. For a time it seemed as though Turenne was winning the game of manoeuvre, because Turenne was able to force the loyalty of numerous smaller German towns along the Rhine, which brought Monte further away from his own supply lines. By early July 1675, both armies were hurting from lack of supplies, with Turenne's horses reduced to eating leaves for want of forage, and the constant rains adding to the misery of both commanders. Eventually, Monte was forced to withdraw to the east for want of forage, and Turenne attempted to seize this chance. With both commanders on the right bank of the Rhine, It seemed as though a confrontation was finally imminent, and by mid-July it was learned that Montecucoli had withdrawn to the town of Salzbach, positioning his men in the various buildings, along the stream banks and along the foothills which the town offered. It was not an especially advantageous position, but by the time Turenne caught up with his rival on the 22nd of July, the defenders appeared more formidable. Turenne temporalised for a time as he weighed up whether or not to attack, but he eventually made the decision to do so. As the cannons started firing, Turen instructed his artillery commander to scout along the German line and see if a good location existed to place the French cannon. This artillery commander, a Jean Saint-Hilaire, wore a red cloak that proclaimed his station, but it also, predictably enough, presented a tempting target to those Allied gunners capable of zeroing in on him. As Saint-Hilaire reported back to Turen, it became clear that the soldier's garb had given him away, Cannonballs began to hit in and around his position. Just as Saint Hilaire turned to move, a cannonball struck him, severing his arm. As he writhed in agony, Saint Hilaire would have been met with an even worse sight than that of his detached arm.
1: Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewellery from Blue Nile. You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
2: The cannonball had smashed through his arm, yes, but immediately after it had struck another individual, Marshal Turin. Cracking into the marshal's stomach, the cannonball essentially cleaved out the old commander's insides gripping through his body and presenting a scene which was as grisly as it was tragic. Marshal Turenne was dead, just like that, in a battle unremarkable in comparison to so many others, and the Marshal's look had just run out. Upon learning of his death, his aides attempted to hush up the news, but word inevitably spread, even reaching Monte Cuculli himself, who was said to have remarked respectfully on his old adversary, "'Today died a man who did honour to mankind.' Having lost their marshal, the French attack was repulsed from Sal's back and chased further west, though they withdrew in relatively good order to fight another day, crossing into Alsace by the end of July and sending urgent messages to Louis that the favourite marshal of France had fallen while in the line of duty. Thus we come to Louis's decision to send troops from the Spanish Netherlands, as well as, in time, Marshal Condé himself south to reinforce the demoralized troops who had just lost their favorite marshal along the left bank of the rhine where they were now camped in alsace sensing weakness charles v of lorraine the nephew of the late duke who had died in august effected a siege of trier when the french withdrew into it and by the 6th of september this important city northwest of strasbourg was in allied hands while condé now in position in alsace Feared that Charles V and Montecucoli would link their forces up, Montecucoli busied himself with flipping back the previously French towns that the late Turenne had captured in the spring, before going into winter quarters early for the sake of his now exhausted troops. Condé, now sensing that the campaigning was over for the year of 1675, did the same. It had been an intense past few months, with relatively little gain along the Rhine, just how Louis wanted it. The loss of Turenne was certainly the most notable defeat for French arms, as historians tend to mark this as the moment when the French initiative along the Rhine lapsed, although that wasn't necessarily the worst thing that could have happened, because just as the French initiative lapsed, so too did the German initiative. It is also worth noting that Condé, perhaps out of fear for his own life, retired after this campaign to his considerable estates, as did his imperial rival Monte Perhaps the death of the venerable Turenne had given them both pause for thought, or perhaps the supreme efforts of the campaigning season had simply taken their toll on the individual men's health. Either way, with the old guard determinedly absent by the end of 1675, the armies on both sides looked to clear the cobwebs for the following year. While all of this campaigning was playing itself out, an intensely dramatic scene was also playing itself out much further to the east, in the lands of the Elector of Brandenburg, so long a flip-flopping thorn in the side of France. Determined to pull the great Elector's attentions away once and for all, Louis set in motion a plan for that Elector's domains, which had been building ever since Frederick William made himself a nuisance on the eve of the Franco-Dutch War. Under the command of the old Swede from the Thirty Years' War, Gustav Rangel, the Swedes were heavily induced by promises of subsidies to attack Brandenburg and plunder it, as they had done a generation before. In April 1672, Sweden and France concluded an alliance, with France promising 400,000 Reichstallers of subsidies in peacetime, to be raised to 600,000 in wartime, in return for Sweden maintaining a 16,000-strong army in her German dominions. Also, Sweden maintained good relations with the Dukes of Holstein-Godorp south of Denmark, as per the deal. By September 1674, Sweden had enlarged her army to 22,000 men after France had increased their subsidies to 900,000 Reichstallers, which she threatened to withdraw altogether as Sweden didn't use this army, which was now stationed in Swedish Pomerania, for an attack on the enemies of France. The most significant aspect of this sideshow in the Franco-Dutch War, which itself would mutate into what was called the Scanian War and which lasted from this point onwards until the end of the Franco-Dutch War in 1678, and would essentially involve, by its end, the Danes, Sweden, Brandenburg and a League of German Princes. But the most significant aspect of it wasn't so much the fact that the Swedes were persuaded by promises of much-needed subsidies to actually act on behalf of France, Instead, the really notable fact was Frederick William's behaviour. Now in his mid-50s and suffering the pain of gout, as did many of his contemporaries, seriously, what was with gout in this era? Frederick William learned of the Swedish invasion in December 1674, and he promptly separated his force of 18,000 men from Monte Cuculli's force. This separation was all part of Louis's plan to divide the Allies, and it seemed to be working, but... Not even the scheming Sun King could have anticipated what Christopher Clark called the most dramatic military exploit of Frederick William's reign as elector. I can be brought to no other resolution, remarked Frederick William upon learning of the Swedish move into the war, than to avenge myself on the Swedes. Enlightening his subjects as to his approach, Frederick William continued to send furious dispatches home to Brandenburg, inducing them to resist the invader the memory of whom remained fresh in the minds of some terrified Brandenburgers who had lived a generation before. Cut down all Swedes, Frederick William wrote in early May, wherever they can lay their hands upon them, adding orders that all good Brandenburgers should break their necks and give them no quarter, moving as fast as he could after having wintered his troops in Franconia from May 1675 Frederick William marched 160 miles in just under a fortnight, taking the Swedes utterly by surprise, and positioning his smaller army to attack Wrangel's larger, intimidating force. After a small victory during a skirmish, the Swedes then took up position at a town called Fairbellen. Having advanced across northern Germany on skis, as many of his soldiers were transported in carts, pulled by their horses, Frederick William had covered an incredible distance in record time. And he now had the element of surprise with the home advantage. Frederick William's men were guided by locals to block certain passages and force the Swedes to form up at the aforementioned town of Fairbellen. On the 18th of June 1675, Frederick William faced 11,000 Swedes with only 6,000 men of his own, as he had moved so fast that most of his men had yet to arrive. Yet he recognized the advantages of the terrain and he seized a low hill across a river from the Swedish position placing his cannon upon it. When the Swedes realised what the Brandenburgers were up to, they attacked up the hill with their cavalry, and thus the majority of the battle descended into this struggle, as the Swedes and Brandenburgers fought bitterly over the hill, with the entrenched Brandenburgers eventually winning the day. With the Swedish cavalry broken, Frederick William's cannon was able to pulverise the remaining Swedish soldiers and as greater portions of his army linked up with him, he was able to pursue the broken Swedes, eventually pushing them out of the electorate altogether. By the 2nd of July then, Frederick William's territory had been rid of Swedes, and his legend had been cemented. Those Swedes who hadn't been chased out of his lands were brutally butchered by the citizenry, fed stories of Swedish excesses from years past, and eager to avenge themselves for the previous generation. It is from this battle that Frederick William's title, the Great Elector, was born. In dispatches to and from the various courts of Europe, while noting his significant action here and what it represented, Brandenburg officials held their elector in a higher esteem than ever before. As Clark noted, Frederick William is the only man of this era to retain the Great Title he was saddled with. All the other attempts at applying such a title to Louis XIV or even to Leopold, the Holy Roman Emperor, were to prove far less successful. So what did the victory actually mean for Brandenburg then? Well, Frederick William was not finished with this victory, as the Swedish invasion represented not merely a new campaign, but, as we said earlier on, the beginning of what would be termed the Scanian War, and which would be waged parallel to the wider Franco-Dutch War, reflecting the fact that the beast originally released by Louis had definitively mutated into an uncontrollable monster. Louis' threats to withdraw his subsidies had compelled the Swedes to act, but by doing so they handed the baton of Opportunity to Christian V, the King of Denmark, who had not only since been induced to make a defensive alliance with the Dutch, but also to make war on the Swedes. Suddenly, it seemed, France's only ally in Stockholm was in a two-front war. The emergence of Charles XI on the Swedish battlefield completed the picture of formidable men operating and distinguishing themselves during this era, and it is largely because of their efforts and legends that the campaigns launched during this period remain so fascinating. The 19-year-old Swedish king was thrust desperately into the command, in the hope that he would make, like his ancestors, and restore the now imperiled Swedish security. Charles' appointment seemed to do the trick as he was able to frustrate Danish incursions into Denmark and effectively remove the threat which the Danes posed to Sweden's position there, although the Danes had better look at sea. As we already know, to add to this triple image of reversal and triumph, the Brandenburgers seemed to just have the Swedes' number on land and would eventually push right into Pomerania, virtually removing the Swedish presence there by the end of the war, and bringing the more recognisable state of Brandenburg-Prussia further into line. These victories further added to the legend, of course, of Frederick William, who had not merely liberated Brandenburg from the invading Swedes, but removed the ancestral threat which they had posed to Berlin since first landing in Pomerania in the early 1630s. Although Frederick William would bitterly lose these gains in the later peace of Nijmegen, Brandenburg and its great elector were able to ride high during most of the Scanian War, as the ambitions of Louis seemed to widen the conflict all across the continent, leaving only Bavaria, it seemed, without a dog in the fight, though the diplomatic campaigns there would continue apace. We will do our best to cover the issue of Scandinavia in the future, but before we close this episode, we must bring our attention back to the considerable proposal and set of circumstances which led to Louis XIV's brother, Philippe, marrying into the Palatine family. The same Palatine family, incidentally, were the French so ravaged from early 1674. Charles Louis, or Karl Ludwig, to give him his German name, the Elector of these Lands, was the second son of Frederick V. In other words, the second son of the Winter King from the Thirty Years' War. As you can see, it's all connected. So who were we all indebted to for bringing the story of Elizabeth Charlotte to life through the translation and editing work of the Princess Palatine's letters? Well, the historian Elberg Forster, and she noted on the proposal of the brother of the French king to the strategically important but relatively unremarkable princess that... Charles Louis was extremely eager to conclude an alliance with the French royal house, for he hoped that such a marriage would not only establish his daughter in great splendour, but also permit him, the Elector, to play the role of mediator between the Hullerman Empire and France, and above all, to shield his own country from the potential aggression of its most powerful neighbour. It is not clear why Louis XIV agreed to this marriage between his brother and a rather poor and reputedly plain German princess, for in 1670 there was no reason to believe that the line of Fals-Simmern would die out in the foreseeable future thereby giving Philippe's family claims to an inheritance in the Palatinate. After a great deal of evasion on the part of the Palatine elector, the dowry for the marriage was fixed at 64,000 livres, a positively paltry sum when one considers that Monsieur's income at the time was almost 2 million livres a year. The unmistakable awkwardness which would have accompanied the lively Lizelot's marriage to Philippe made itself felt when the unfortunate bride learned of the invasion of her homeland. Remarking in a letter to her aunt, the Duchess Sophie, the wife of the Duke of Hanover, who incidentally was made an elector of his duchy in 1692, Lizalot wrote on the 22nd of August 1674 that My first wish for Heidelberg must be that God may restore the blessed peace to us, else the porridge will become very dear in the good Palatinate if... Monsieur de Turenne keeps taking away more cows, although I hope that the Duke of Hanover will now put a stop to this. Just now I am being called to go downstairs, for the king, the queen, and the Dauphin wish to call on me in passing. They are coming from Paris, where a Deum was sung today for the battle the Prince of Condé won. He defeated the Prince of Orange's rear guard and took all the baggage trains and many prisoners. All of this is very well and good, but to speak very plainly, I would prefer a good peace to all of this, for if we had that, our good Palatinate and Papa would find some rest. Though she would rarely comment on the nature of campaigns during her wealth of correspondence, Lizzalot's letters shed an important light on society, as much as what it was like to be a woman in the court of Louis XIV. Speaking of which, it is debatable whether by late 1675, Louis himself pondered whether, as Liz put it, he would prefer a good peace to all of this, even if the lines seemed to be holding and the Netherlands drew some triumphs for him. It remained to be seen, following this eventful year when the war spread into Scandinavia, the old guard retired from service and the Prince of Orange continued to try and take it to his adversary, whether France could maintain such a level of endurance or whether the war for glory would ruin Louis's kingdom before sufficient levels of glory could be found. 1676, it seemed would be a year of high hopes for both sides. Okay, so before we get out of here, it's only right that we record the patrons for this week. So starting from the start of the week, we have first Patrick F. Attaché. We have Michael V., who updated his pledge and is now a fully-fledged diplomat. Congratulations. We have Oded L., who is now a diplomat. So congratulations to him. Then we have Mark B., who is an ambassador. And then we have Bob K., diplomat bill c ambassador sean m student of diplomacy so that's all the patrons for this week guys thanks very much for giving and i hope you enjoy the extra feed a small reminder that i won't be here to do this next week but you will get your episode the reason why i won't be here is because i'll be in amsterdam so yeah pray for me and hope that i return safe and sound because it is my stag and i'm really looking forward to it but yeah so thanks for listening guys And I'll see you all again soon.
1: Planning for your next trip?